Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast where we talk about how our political institutions are failing us and how to fix them. I'm Julia Azari. I'm an associate professor of political science at Marquette University. I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America. And I'm James Walner, a senior fellow at the R Street Institute. Today we're going to talk about the 2020 election and the future of the Democratic Party. And to help us understand this, we're welcoming Seth Maskett of the University of Denver. Seth is a professor of political science and director of the Center on American Politics. He's the author of numerous books and short articles about political parties, elections, state politics, and occasionally Star Wars. Most importantly, Seth is a good friend of mine and a collaborator on numerous short pieces and book chapters. He's a founder of the political science blog Mischiefs of Faction, where I also write. His new book, Learning from Loss, traces how Democrats' perceptions of why they lost in 2016 shaped the 2020 nomination contest. Welcome, Seth. Thanks so much for having me on. So first off, Walk us through your book. You spoke with activists in critical primary states about why they thought Hillary Clinton lost in 2016 and how this influenced their approach to the question of who to nominate in 2020. What did you find? So basically the idea of this book was that I, I was interested in how parties go about making a decision. Like there's there's a number of good books out there about the decisions that parties make, that is how, you know, what stances to take and who to nominate and things like that. But they all sort of assume that there's a conversation that takes place before that between activists and official party leaders and elected officials and interest groups and others. And I wanted to basically catch a party that just lost an election in the act of trying to figure out why it lost and then figuring out what to do about it going forward. So there's a lot of different angles of the research in the book. I, I There's a fair number of quantitative things. I, I do, there's some survey experiments. There's uh, analysis of election returns and campaign finance patterns, but a lot of the emphasis of the book is on interviews I did with Democratic political activists in the um, in a lot of the early contest states in Iowa and New Hampshire and South Carolina and Nevada, as well as Washington, D.C., and starting pretty early in the cycle. So starting like in, in early 2017, I, I was able to identify a bunch of these different people who tend to be active in the presidential contests. Um, I, I ultimately did about 65 uh, interviews with different people and uh, started off with the main question um, uh, of why they thought Hillary Clinton lost in 2016. And uh, also the question, who are you thinking about for 2020? And then followed up repeatedly with these people over time. That first question, why did Hillary Clinton lose, um, that produced a lot of different answers. People have a lot of theories about why that happened, and they still have a lot of theories. Like there's, There is no agreement within the Democratic Party about just why that happened. Um, people offered a range of ideas from the campaign. You know, they, they emphasized the wrong states, or they had bad messaging, or there were problems with Hillary Clinton. She, you know, certain there was unlikability, or speaking style, or Russian interference. There are a whole lot of things. One. Uh, narrative that kept coming up was this idea of uh, quote unquote identity politics. I, I know that's a loaded term. It means a lot of things to different people. Um, I, what I, the, the narrative that I'm describing here is this idea that Hillary Clinton and Democrats spent too much time uh, focusing on the needs of underrepresented groups of, of women, people of color, the LGBT community and so forth, and not enough speaking to so-called working class white voters um, who felt like uh, the Democratic Party was no longer speaking to them 
Donald Trump was, and so they moved over in in the Republican direction. I, I'm I'm not really making the case that that narrative is true, but that a lot of prominent Democrats came out of 2016 thinking that it might be true, and it concerned them, and it led them to believe that uh, the best path forward was to basically go with a moderate, older white guy uh, for, as the nominee in 2020 to put up against Trump's re-election. Um, and it wasn't necessarily um, a choice specifically for Biden at that point, but as long as Joe Biden was around and uh, doing reasonably okay in a lot of these um, uh, early election contests and debates and speaking and, and so forth, um, he had a real edge. Um, and a lot of people within the party were predisposed towards someone like him. And it, it made it a lot harder um, for other very skilled candidates to really do well in the nomination contest. Yeah. So, I, you know, I, I think this is a, a one I want to say this is a, a really interesting book. And also, Seth, you're, you're, you're a fun writer to read. There's, a, there's a, a nice sense of humor in the writing. So I think, you know, it's, this is not a boring political science book. This is a fun political science book to read. But I want to kind of ask about the, the, the political moment that we're in and have been for a while. There's a couple of things you write in the book. Uh, I'll quote you. The election itself was close enough and weird enough to provide evidence for a great range of theories. Uh, it's another quote. It's worth noting here that the narratives are heavily influenced by the simple fact that there was a great deal of subtlety, variation, and bias in that, you know, Clinton won in or Clinton lost in a few states by very little votes. Um, and also, you know, that it's uh, to see a decreasing consensus on the lessons, which is, I think, one of the important parts of the story that that there are these eight narratives and nobody really agreed on what they were. And the, uh, over time, it, there became less consensus. You know, I, I, it seems to me to, to spring from this moment that we're in, in which, you know, the elections are so close that it, it and so many voters are already accounted for just because of straight up partisanship that it's very hard to kind of come away with a, a definitive take. So it becomes a really a, a struggle about who has power within the party to shape the narratives. And you know, so is this really a function of this current period? You know, I think like, you know, like landslides in 64, 72, 80, you know, kind of sent a very clear message and a clear story, although maybe the parties didn't always learn from from that even then. Um, but like, is there something unique, do you think, about this period that that makes it, it harder to have meaningful narratives coming out of elections, I guess is the, the short question here. So, I mean, this is an interesting question. I, I think I think you're right that because we're in an era with fewer landslides, fewer blowouts, um, that creates the potential for more plausible narratives. You know, that, I mean, like the, you know, the 2016 election was very close. Um, it wouldn't have taken too many votes in too many different directions to, to really change the outcome. And, and as a result, you know, lots of different things um, are potentially believable. Um, you know, I mean, it, it's, there's been a fair amount written about, you know, James Comey's influence on that election. Um, that if he had simply not said what he said two weeks before the election, he might have had a different result. And that's that's possible. Um, and all these things potentially have some small impact. And whereas, you know, just not that many things are going to change, uh, you know, make make uh, Walter Mondale win in 1984 over over Ronald Reagan. Um, 
you know, which which creates, a, you know, a lot of possibilities for these factions to be more or less at each other's throats all the time um, for everyone disagreeing about, uh, you know, just why an election came out as it did. Um, you know, I think somewhat related to this. Um, Republican factional strife, I think, is an underemphasized part of the story of Donald Trump's nomination. Um, that is, I mean, you had, uh, there were uh, certainly a fair number of people within the Republican Party who did not agree with the, the nomination of John McCain in 2008, although he was he was certainly a popular figure. Um, he had a more telling example in, in 2012 with the nomination of Mitt Romney. Romney's nomination was in some ways a lot like Joe Biden's. That is, a lot of people within the party didn't necessarily agree with him. Um, they they weren't totally comfortable with with his direction, with his past, uh, but they more or less all came around to rallying behind him because they, for the one reason that they saw him as electable, they thought he could plausibly beat Obama. And there had been a growing disconnect. I think um, uh, uh, John Sides and Lynn Vavrick wrote about this in their in their book on the on the. 2012 election that there had been this growing disconnect ideologically between the Republican base and Republican presidential nominees um, over several election cycles. And once Romney loses coming out of 2012, that rift, you know, that, that kind of explodes on the party and uh, that, you know, they, they lose a lot of the rationale um, where party leaders say, trust us, we can win if you all, if we all, you know, suck it up and back this nominee. And that's, um, part of that explosion is what produces uh, Donald Trump, where the you know the party just simply uh, can no longer make that that case anymore. Can I jump in very quickly on this this question about election interpretation, since this is my book from some years ago? But to to Lee's question about whether the the nature of contemporary elections lends itself to this kind of multiple narratives, I don't speak so much about how many narratives there are, but these two things are kind of related in the sense that as, as polarization has, has grown, elections have gotten closer, right? That's, that's, we don't really see these blowout elections anymore, but at the same time, it, it increases a kind of demand for a narrative um, that every election kind of has to mean something. And, and we see this, like you can almost draw, I think like a linear line, like a line from a linear line that is a little redundant. Um, 2004, 2008, to a lesser extent, 2012, I think on a national scale, but then certainly 2016, and we're now also seeing it with 2020, which is that the, the degree to which people perceive the stakes of the election to be kind of fundamental and existential, then narratives proliferate. And sometimes there's a lot of different ones, and sometimes it sort of converges on one. Um, you get a lot of demand for a story about what the election meant, even as elections get on balance much closer. So those those two things are actually related, I think. James, you're up. Yes, well, thanks uh, for joining us, Seth. And I must confess, I have not read the book, but I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to it. And I, I love this topic. I think it's so important. And I think that we don't pay enough attention to it. One, you just learn from losing, right? When I left Capitol Hill, I had one of my former colleagues ask me how you get really good at a certain job. I'm like, well, you lose <laughs> and you lose a lot and then you make mistakes and you learn from those mistakes. And then hopefully you learn how to not make those mistakes in the future. And I think the same thing is, uh, is true for politics writ large. It's just how experiential learning works. But what I like about this topic is this concept of history and how we remember it. 
which is really important. And we typically don't acknowledge this, especially in politics, that we construct our past. And we forget that the people who ensure the way that, you know, different events are going to be remembered are not the people who are necessarily participating in those events, but the people who come afterwards. You know, you really don't get to write your own story unless you die in the act. I'm thinking about Cato the Younger here, who's, you know, pulling out. He tries to kill himself. He falls off his bed, according to Plutarch. He then, you know, they sew him up and then he like rips out his bowels. Sorry, listeners. You know, and he's like dies in this great act of, you know, you know, he's just a last act of rebellion against the evil Julius Caesar. And he's the lionized for his Republican virtue. Uh, But we forget that that not everybody in the late Republic was like Cato. In fact, that's, you know, the, the Republic itself didn't have a lot of civic virtue. But we remember we remember the Roman Republic is this ideal time because Cato essentially died in the act. And it's a narrative that we tell ourselves. And I think narratives are extraordinarily important. And this gets, I guess, to my question. Um, and I'm, I don't do as much work on elections as I do as in, on what happens between elections. But it seems to me that you know, I typically take a very functional account of parties, right? Government does a lot of important things. And it makes sense that people want to influence what government does. And parties are one of the chief ways, if not the chief way that citizens, that people have at their disposal, the chief tool to influence what government does and doesn't do. And so I try to connect that and understand that with the narrative aspect of it. And I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit more on that. How do these like the battles over the different narratives and the way in the ways that people try to shape them? How does that then relate to um, elites efforts? in between elections to to enact policy that may or may not be related to those narratives. I mean, I'm thinking like the 2013 GOP autopsy is, is something that comes to mind as well. And that we you know, very consciously interpret the, um, the electorate and mandates and narratives. I'm thinking about Hannah Pitkin's work as well here in different ways to suit different agendas. And I was wondering if, if I'm on the right track there or if there's something I'm missing. That, that was, that's a really interesting question. I love, you're thinking like, Cato. And, you know, the, the first example that went to my mind was like Alfred the butler, um, you know, who teaches, uh, uh, you know, why do we fall so we can learn to pick ourselves up. Um, uh, but same sort of narrative. Um, what what was interesting to me is that, um, I, I mean, I think, yes, in many ways, we, we totally we learn by failing. It's how we get better. But a lot of uh, politicians, we, we try to learn from losing an election, but we don't always know exactly why we lost an election. Elections are these hugely complex things that can go in a million different ways. And, and similarly, people don't even know why they won an election. I, there's um, been this one of these interesting conversations I've seen going on around Twitter over the last few days where uh, we see Barack Obama criticizing some people and he gets some pushback and other people are like, look, he just, you know, he won two elections by large margins. I think he knows something about winning elections. And I'm like, he probably doesn't like, you know, he knows stuff. He's a good politician, but just because he won doesn't mean he understands the electorate in a way that say Mitt Romney or John McCain would not. Um, Because, you know, it's, it's a lot of imposing a narrative on an incredibly complex thing. Mm -hmm. Um, But interestingly, you, you talk about sort of how does this impact people's behavior between elections? I, I get into that a little bit in the book. There's um, uh, in one of his book, uh, Richard Fenno uh, talks about, you know, he, he had a whole book on, on Pete Domenici. Um, Pete Domenici 
uh, he when he ran for re-election to the Senate in 1978, he underperformed. He he won, but he the polls had him leaning by double digits. He ends up just winning re-election very narrowly. This gives him a lot of concern. He and his staff talk about it for a while and come up with some explanations about why he underperformed and the the narrative they came up with which again you know whether it was true or not is, is kind of immaterial was that he had not focused enough on on policy credentials within dc so this led him to seek a more active role in the senate budget committee in future years and and kind of change the the trajectory of of his his whole career um you know probably to his benefit but um you know that was simply an interpretation um we can think of even though it was not a successful campaign like ross perot's uh, uh, his presidential campaign in 1992, his emphasis on the national debt and deficit. Um, after you know, he had a pretty good showing for a third-party candidate. That I think probably affected the uh, you know the behavior of, of Bill Clinton and other Democrats in the mid 90s, and and a and a, a new focus on the deficit. My book focuses mostly on losing narratives for parties. So. You know, the the impact of those on governing, it's a little detached because it's mostly what a party does when it's out of power um, and how it tries to reshape things. But I think these narratives can affect a lot of what a party does, um, certainly on the Democratic side, to affect how its nomination systems run, like what sort of reforms to engage in, um, whether they want to do things like create superdelegates or undermine superdelegates um, or, you know, emphasize different states or de-emphasize others. Um, but I, we, we do see a lot of consequences of these uh, narratives going forward. I think it, it, it definitely affects the behavior of parties, and to some extent, it, it affects what uh, people within those parties do once they're in power. No, I, I, absolutely. And just to jump in, you know, I think it's important to point out, though, that even with losing, even in losing, people are, jo as you mentioned with the Republicans in particular, even in losing, people are jockeying for control for influence vis-a-vis -vis their intra-party rivals moving forward. Politics is a perpetual thing that unfolds over time. It never ends. And that means that you may lose today, but how you understand that loss can influence how you win in the future. And I, you know, I find that really interesting. It's not that there isn't some objective truth out there, but how we relate to these stories, how we relate to our history and how we learn from it is through storytelling. And I think that's a vital point that we too often uh, forget about, especially in the social sciences. Yeah, this is actually sort of leads right into what, what I wanted to talk about, which has to do with party factions, but also with kind of the, the power structures that shape those factions. So, I mean, we've been hearing a lot about this. I spend too much time, obviously, on Twitter, as now that we're all at home, we all do. Um, but you, you've seen a lot of arguing, including, I guess this was somewhat a response to Obama's book about slogans like defund the police and the impact that that had on the, the 2020 races, particularly the congressional races where Democrats underperformed expectations. And so it all ends up going back to kind of this identity politics narrative and, and have the Democrats tacked too far in it in this woke direction that has, is alienating to, you know, various types of voters, white working class voters, whatever. And so this is, I mean, this to me is one of the, the most interesting parts of your, of your book. Um, and I remember saying back in, uh, back in January at your book conference that I felt like, you know, this was really, <laughs> these kinds of narratives are not accidental and they're not necessarily, I mean, it's not that they're insincere, but they're very strategic, right? They, 
allow the same kinds of people, you know, surprise, establishment, white people get to maintain power. Um, and that was kind of the thought that I had carried through. But then I was actually, I reread some of that, those interviews this morning, that section in your book. And I realized there, when they talk about identity politics, the identity politics they're really talking about is white identity politics. Um, and this is a narrative, this is not a narrative that was unfamiliar to me as someone who sort of started understanding what politics was in the Clinton years. This is a very familiar narrative. Uh, the Democrats have paid too much attention to special interest groups and they have neglected ordinary, you know, this is the language they use, right? Like ordinary white working class Americans and it's all white identity politics. You have this whole section about country country music, right? There's this quote about, you know, Democrats should listen to more country music. They shouldn't be so condescending. And it's actually none of it. None of what you wrote about in the interviews is about policy or even is about minorities or women or, or whatever. It's, it's about white people. And it's about a very specific image of white people and a very specific image of white identity politics. So I wonder how, I guess this has turned into more of a comment than a question, but I wonder how you see those identity narratives, the degree to which they are rooted in a sense of preserving existing power relationships, but also like how you see that these identity politics narratives coming off 2020. And just real quick, and I so apologize, but I want to just, I have a there's a passage in, in Pitkin's work, the concept of representation that really gets to what Julia just said. And, you know, she says human beings are not merely political animals, but also language using animals. Their behavior is shaped by their ideas. What they do and how they do it depends on how they see themselves and their world. And this in turn depends upon the concepts through which they see. And so those are definitely contested content, uh, um, ideas out there and, and narratives are hugely important there. Thanks. Um, yeah, this is this is a really rich topic. And like the um, I'm, as Julia was going through that, I was just sort of sitting here nodding my head because um, there's I mean, there's a lot of these issues that I've been thinking about more and more uh, since the book came out and, you know, just watching people start to interpret 2020. Um, so okay, I might go off on a bit of a rant here. Um, uh, definitely a lot of the the narratives that I heard from people about this election seemed like um, these were already things that people were going to believe before the election happened. Um, we see a lot of the same arguments coming up over and over again throughout time. That being said, some of the people I spoke to, I think, had very clearly changed their minds, at least temporarily, as a result of um, as a result of 2016, I, uh, many people describe who I, who I, many people who I interviewed describe that election as disorienting and, in their their words, traumatic. You know that is it 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 threw off a lot of what their expectations were about politics. It it defied their understanding of polling, their understanding of what electability meant, or just what could happen within the American political system. And they just they found that disorienting. So, like I talked to. Um, a longstanding feminist activist um, in New Hampshire. She's worked on presidential campaigns for like 30 years. Um, and I, in 2017, I had asked her, you know, what do you think the party needs to do going forward? She's like, I think we need to nominate um, a white man for, uh, to put up against Trump. And she's like, I, I hate, I hate saying this. Um, I think I'm going to get kicked out of the women's club for this. Uh, you know, she wouldn't, didn't want me to use her name with that. Um, she later changed her mind. Like I followed up a few years later, she was like, yeah, no, I, I watched what happened in 2018. And I, I, I don't think I was right about that initially. But I think there were enough people that sort of came out of that saying, 
um, uh, you know, this, this was a scary moment and they had to give up some things that they really cared about. Not everyone believed that. Um, some people sort of came back to familiar arguments. I, I spoke to a, a state legislator um, who had said that one of the main issues she really cared about was putting a woman in the White House and she was not going to let Donald Trump take that away from her. It was too important an issue um, and she wasn't going to you know, go down to Trump's level um, and give up the things she cared about in getting into politics. But this argument, uh, Julia, that you bring up, this, this, this sort of identity politics idea, um, whether we're talking about defund the police or anything, it is a very old argument. It's, basically, it's, it's the argument in one form or another that has come up for like the last 50 or 60 years within the Democratic Party, basically every time they lose an election. Um, in 1972, you know, there's you, you can hear evidence of uh, people at the Democratic Convention complaining about uh, all these new faces that are showing up, all the you know the the young people, all the 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 women, the black people, the gays who are seem to be pulling the party in an uncomfortable direction for them. Um, in 1980, when Carter lost, Democrats started worrying that. Uh, special interest had become too powerful, which is part of what led to the Hunt Commission and superdelegate reforms. Um, when Mondale lost in 84, you know, a, a number of people came away saying, well, clearly he lost because this party was too close to Jesse Jackson and the National Organization for Women. Um, you heard more of that post-1988. You know, a lot of this is what led to the nomination of Bill Clinton in 92 and, and sort of an advantaging of more moderate Southern whites uh, within the party. I should say that, you know, coming out of 2020, um, I find this argument not terribly convincing. Um, you know, basically below the presidential level, the Republicans had a pretty okay election. Um, it, you know, just across the board, they they did relatively well in congressional elections and state legislative elections. And the Democrats who lost are the ones who always lose in that kind of election. It's basically moderates and swing districts all over the place. Um, yes, Republicans said that the Democrats were socialists and said that they had gone too far and defunding the police. And and yes, Democrats lost some seats, but that doesn't mean that's why they lost those seats. Uh, the Republicans always say Democrats are socialists. Republicans said that in 2018 and Democrats picked up 40 seats that year. Um, but, you know, back to the to the narrative question. Um, it's interesting to think about what this, you know, what, what the defund the police, uh, you know, or the identity politics narrative is is saying. No Democrat in 2020 ran on the defund the police uh, uh, platform. At least no one was running for Congress on that platform. Uh, Joe Biden and a lot of other prominent Democrats explicitly rejected that as a narrative. Um, yes, you know, there were some left-leaning activists were saying that, but a party can't stifle everything that every activist says. So I don't think this narrative has a specific prescriptive meaning, but symbolically it's saying what this narrative has always said, that people of color shouldn't ask for too much. Because uh, when they do, that hurts the whole party and it keeps them out of power, keeps everyone out of power. And uh, that's how moderate whites have tried to preserve uh, power within that party and have tried to been uh, doing so for 50 or 60 years now. It's interesting that you know their numbers, uh, the number of moderate whites as a, as a percentage of the Democratic Party is smaller than it used to be. Um, you know, they are, they're still struggling for power, but um, it's, it's more of a struggle than it used to be. And I, I think they're getting more pushback um, and, you know, have, have limited options. But it, this is still the same narrative that they use to, uh, to, to try and reassert themselves. One of the things that I really liked about this book 
uh, is that it it kind of challenges some of the way that we think about how parties and political actors act, that it's sort of this rational way in which they look objectively at the world and then respond, but rather that parties are organizations, people operate in social networks, and there's a, a kind of a way in which people collectively make sense of, of the world. And actually, re reading this book, it actually reminded me a, a lot about my, my book on lobbying, The Business of America is Lobbying, you know, in which I talked to a lot of lobbyists and tried to understand why companies made the decisions that they did to engage in lobbying. And you know, a, a lot of what I found was that companies didn't really know exactly what they were doing, but they had lobbyists who were trying to convince them to do certain things because maybe they worked, but the lobbyists themselves uh, benefited tremendously from companies doing more lobbying. So there was sort of this process I, you know, that you know, I read a lot of, of organizational sociology literature uh, and thought a lot about bounded rationality, which is you know this concept that people don't really know what the right thing to do is, but they look for something that seems sort of right. Um, but also this process of organizational uh, sense-making, the work of Carl Like, uh, the, the, I think he's a German sociologist, you know, which is that people don't really know how to make sense of the world, so they kind of look at how other people are making sense of the world, and somehow out of that, a narrative emerges because the world is a complex place and we're all trying to figure out what, uh, you know, causal relationships when everything is, it has, you know, so many variables and you can only run presidential elections once. Uh, I mean, and there is, there is some political science literature, you know, which really talks about how people make sense of the world by talking to, to other people around them. I think of Betsy Sinclair's work on the social citizen, uh, Robert Huckfeld's entire career has basically been about this. But it, you know, in many ways, it, it seems like it's not really the kind of main thrust of the discipline that we tend to treat uh, a, a lot of actors is these kind of rational actors and they have the, this whole median voter theorem, which assumes that parties know where the median voter is or that that's even a meaningful concept. Um, but, you know, I, I want to, uh, so I mean, I want to commend you on, on that approach, but I also want to ask you to kind of think a little bit more about like, if we take this, this a little bit more seriously that nobody knows how how things work in the world, or or if you press one button, like what what you get as a result, like how does that help us understand more than just what what parties do, but how members of Congress operate, even you know how interest groups operate? Like it, it seems like it, it it should really change the way we think about how actors act in a in a political system, because you know a lot of it is is really socially constructed by power relationships within organizations and networks. Yeah, that's, um, that's really interesting. Uh, I, one of the things this was reminding of, so um, I'm at the University of Denver. We hosted one of the presidential debates in 2012, uh, the, the first debate between uh, Barack Obama and Mitt Romney. And I had, I was sitting there in the press room watching the debate and, you know, with, you know, like a thousand reporters and like, I actually, I had a couple of interviews lined up with local 
reporters for right after the debate. And they were like, well, we'll, we'll just, you know, we'll want to hear your take as soon as the debate is over. And so I'm just sitting there watching it silently with everyone else and uh, trying to figure out what I'm going to say to the press. And I'm just realizing how much I'm relying on someone else to create a narrative for me. Um, and then realizing, oh God, I'm the one who has to make that narrative now. And I, I, got, I got into a little bit of a panic mode there, realizing that I'm, you know, this is I'm, I'm sort of the one setting the agenda here. Um, and I think I turned to someone next to me. I'm like, I don't think Obama's doing that great. Does that sound right? And they're like, Yeah, that sounds right. So you know, I, I felt really reassured. But yeah, a lot of this is, you know, sometimes these are really constructed on the spot, um, and but still have a, a, a fair amount of. Um, you know, impact on on the way people come to believe these things going forward, and and you know these these narratives can be constructed with a combination of, you know, politically interested people, people who've worked on the campaigns, or or you know, people within the parties, as well as political reporters who have just watched these things and are you know seasoned analysts and uh, you know pundits who are just um, trying to you know explain things to uh to viewers and to readers and there's some sort of interplay there that you know that that allows narratives to be born and ultimately you know affects the way people behave even if there's not a whole lot of you know empirical reality brought to bear at, at that moment you know i'm also thinking this this comes into uh work on um uh, some of julia's work on on mandate claims um, uh, some other uh, folks works on mandate claims as well on um, just interpretation of elections. So, you know, I was thinking about like, you know, the interpretation of 1980 and what that meant uh, for a lot of people. I mean, you know, 1980 was, you have an unpopular incumbent. Um, it, it doesn't happen that often that an incumbent loses re-election, but it does happen once in a while, particularly when you have you know, kind of the perfect storm that, uh, you know, Jimmy Carter was facing, you know, you have crisis abroad, you have an economic crisis at home, um, you know, bad things happening. But a lot of punditry, a lot of um, uh, Reagan supporters came out of that saying this was a ratification for, uh, for Reagan's agenda for, uh, you know, very dramatic tax cuts and a, and a, and a retrenchment of uh, a lot of government social commitments and an expansion of uh, the government's military commitments. And that really affected the behavior of, uh, you know, people in the House and the Senate. You know, he, I mean, he got a lot of support for his first budget from Democrats in the House, um, all because of the way people were interpreting that election and what they thought voters would want out of them. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 I think this stuff is really important. I, I uh, but I, I don't think there's a, there's, there's necessarily a whole lot of science that goes into constructing these narratives in the first place. That's actually something that really struck me in my, uh, the interviews I was doing with people for this book is that, you know, I was talking, the people I was talking to, they were, they struck me as, as quite savvy and quite experienced. And, you know, they've watched a lot of elections and, and been very engaged, but, a lot of this discussion about narratives was very much from like a pre-moneyball world. You know, they 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 weren't necessarily testing a lot of these assumptions. They were going with a lot of, you know, gut instinct. You know, based on experience certainly, but it was simply you know uh, based on their own understandings of what electability looked like and what sort of things influence elections that they simply believe uh, to be true. I think I want to pick up on this and and link it to what uh, you said earlier, Seth, and, and Julia's comments and in, in our first exchange as well. And 
and just speculate briefly that I'm wondering if elections can even have, if, if you think about it, a narrative. Because narratives imply motive. They imply an understanding of why people, uh, why that election went the way it did. Um, you know, the election narrative is X because it meant Y or something. But only individuals have motives, right? Groups don't have motives. Only individuals have motives. And so if you say this election was about X, what you're, is that really just saying that's just reflecting more your efforts or says more about what your preferred narrative should be? And it doesn't mean that there's not a truth out there, but is it just, I mean, is it just too complex for us to, to know what the central meaning of an election is simply because there is no central meaning of an election? And then kind of related to that, if so, if it is, if I'm right about that, and it, it tells us more about the individuals who try to frame those narratives, then is it easier or harder to, for individuals to define narratives today than in the past, right? You think about you know, technology, maybe, if you think about the lack of action in places like Congress or in other public forums where people can see their claims adjudicated, it becomes more about assertions, it comes more about this is the best we could get, or we had to do it this way because if we didn't, this other bad thing would happen. And if that's the case, what can we expect in the future if it is easier to, for individuals to frame narratives and looking forward? I mean, if you look at the Georgia special election and the rhetoric around it, you would think that Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue are basically saving America from falling into the ocean and like Karl Marx coming in. And if you look on the Republican side or if you look at the rhetoric on the Democratic side, it's like, you know, if we don't do this, the fascists are going to prevail. And it's like, forgive me, but I'm not sure that, you know, in a thousand years, two thousand years, uh, Loeffler's record and, and Warnock's record would look that different. Maybe they will. And I don't want to downplay their consequences of the policies for the people who support either candidate. But ultimately, because there is so little action in places like Congress today, it almost is easier for us to say, well, look at all those socialists over there. And because there's nothing to point to, right? And it just becomes about assertions and claims. Am I wrong about that? Or what do you think? This is interesting. So, you know, I, I, I think it is possible to ascribe a narrative to a party or a group, you know, not, not just an individual. I mean, I think, you know, people do do this for strategic reasons a lot of the times. But, you know, I'm thinking about like, um, you know, for example, what was the lesson of John McCain losing the Republican presidential nomination in 2000? And, you know, it, people tried to put, you know, sort of a lesson on that. Um, and, you know, I think McCain came out of that believing that he lost because um, he had alienated parts of the party that he, it turned out he couldn't afford to alienate, you know, particularly like the Christian right um, and other very conservative groups. I don't think that's a crazy interpretation. Um, and I, I think there was actually, there was, I think, a considerable amount of truth to that. And not, notably, when he ran again for president in 2008, he made a real point of trying to woo the same factions in, within the party that he'd alienated eight years earlier. And then he wins. And so is that the exact reason why he lost in 2000 and why he won in 2008? Maybe yes, maybe no. But I, I don't think that's, that's, a, that's a terrible interpretation. And I, I think, you know, to win the nomination, I think he made the right call on that. Um, but yes, they're, they're not always as, as clean as that. Um, I think it's an interesting question you ask about whether it's, it's gotten easier or harder to create narratives these days. Um, part of the challenge is that, you know, we don't have that many, you know, as we talked about before, we, we don't have as many blowout elections. Um, 
you know, there's, we have a lot of closer presidential elections. It, it makes it easier to generate a lot of narratives, but um, harder for uh, the media or for a party to really converge on one of them. Um, you also have a much more splintered media, right? I mean, there, you know, there, there can be lots of, of different people competing about just what the narrative is. Um, and it's, it's harder to get convergence on one of them. Um, one of the studies I have uh, within this book is a look at uh, how, how newspapers were covering um, the last few presidential election cycles. And uh, this is where I, I sort of replicate a method that uh, Margie Hershey did back in, in 1984. Um, I look at media coverage um, where they're trying to impose narratives after 2008 and 2012 and, and, and 2016. Um, and after 2008, actually, you know, that, that was, you know, th that was actually the biggest election margin we've had in the 21st century so far. Um, there, there was not a lot of competition for that narrative. I mean, people came up with, you know, explanations of that story pretty quickly, talked about um, Obama's skills as, as, a, as a candidate and how this was this really important uh, moment racially for the United States. And uh, reporters converged on that fairly quickly. Um, there wasn't a lot of discussion after just a few months um, about just what that narrative was. 2012 was a little more complicated, but again, it was, but there was a relatively simple story. Uh, you had an incumbent running for re-election. The economy was growing. You know, people had an easier time with that. 2016, um, there was a lot more disagreement about what that narrative was. And in particular, the press didn't converge on a narrative going forward. It, the, the press coverage actually became more dispersed over the following year um, to, the, you know, to the point where they, they still don't have an agreement about why 2016 came out as it did. Now, some of that may be that you know the media has gotten more splintered over time and that there's more factions within that but i think also part of it is just it's, it's a closer and harder and weirder election to create narratives about it was just you know there it was just a lot less clear and i wonder you know 2020 may end up looking like that sort of thing as well um given how close it was given that there wasn't a lot of agreement between the presidential results and the the the, the down ballot races either um, but it, it may be, it may be easier to create narratives, but it's harder to find some sort of convergence on them these days. All right. So I'm going to kind of skip us ahead. Um, we have, we had a whole bunch more questions we wanted to ask you about the future of each party, but, um, we gotta, we gotta wrap up. So I'm going to move into talking about electability. Um, this was a, a big conversation, obviously, leading into uh, the 2020 election for how all 5,000 years of that primary went on. Um, and you've written a little bit about this. You've got a piece, uh, Newsweek, that came out a couple weeks ago about what, you know, was Biden electable? So I, I want to put this electability question out into the into the discussion about was by obviously Biden won, so he was electable. But did this kind of electability justification pay off? Yeah, thanks. Sorry if I've been going on too long on the other stuff. But yeah, so this was so the main question of, of this, this election cycle. Um, I, I mentioned in there, there was a series of surveys done by YouGov um, over the last four presidential election cycles where they asked Democrats like the year before the election, uh, do you prefer a candidate who agrees with you on most issues or a candidate who can win? And in other election cycles, you know, Democrats overwhelmingly say, I want a candidate who agrees with me on most issues. 2019, 2020, they totally changed their mind on that. They were like, I want someone who can win. 
Um, they were willing to support a nominee who could win, even if that person didn't agree with them on a lot. And uh, that, you know, that's partially, I think, a reflection of just sort of the growth of negative polarization over time. I think that's partially a reflection specifically on Donald Trump, um, where Democrats just really, really wanted him out of office. Um, and so that's that's a that's a great environment for for someone like Biden who got immediately perceived as the electability candidate. Um, a lot of people were backing him based on the assumption that they thought he could win, that they thought he could pull um, some, uh, you know, the the working class whites back into the Democratic coalition without losing, um, you know, without losing women, without losing people of color. Um, and that that would pay off. Obviously, like everything else we've been talking about, electability is one of those things that's really difficult to measure ahead of time. Uh, we don't get to run this election again with Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or anyone else at the top of the ticket. Um, one of the things I talked about, you know, in that, that Newsweek article you mentioned, um, there was a poll done uh, just about a year ago. So uh, it was October, November, 2019, um, uh, just asking people there, you know, doing a lot of matchups in swing states. And they found um, consistent with a lot of other polls that Democrats generally had a, you know, a decent advantage over Donald Trump at that time. You know, he, uh, Democrat, whatever Democratic candidate it was, was winning by four or five points nationally. Um, but within a number of those swing states in, in, in Ohio or in, uh, you know, the, the upper Midwest states, uh, Michigan and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and uh, Arizona, um, uh, it, it came down, it was very close. It was a point or two race and Biden was winning those states just by narrow margins and Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren were losing those states. And I don't know, you know, how predict, you know, the kind of predictive value that those polls have. But, you know, if they have any, that suggests that maybe these concerns about electability were right, that, you know, had uh, another Democratic nominee underperformed Biden just by a point or two in Wisconsin and Michigan and, and Arizona and certainly Georgia, um, we could be looking at a different outcome today. Um, you know, again, you know, Biden looks like he's winning by, you know, four points or so nationwide and 7 million votes at this point. Um, but it wouldn't have taken that many votes to switch to have another uh, split between the popular vote and the electoral college. And maybe that, uh, you know, maybe that focus on electability and Joe Biden was the right call. Now that doesn't mean it's the right call for every election. Um, you know, maybe against a different Republican nominee, we would have seen a, a very different set of calculations. Um, but, you know, at, at least judging from, from that limited evidence, uh, you know, it's, it suggests that possibly what, the, what these Democrats came up with was the right call. Yeah. So, I mean, I've been kind of thinking about this after the election and what I've, what I've said in a couple different webinars is that before the election, I would have told you that electability is nonsense and retrospective voting is how things work and that the Democrats could run a, you know, an old wet, wet mop and the economy is a disaster and everything is a mess and Trump would lose. And the, the results of the 2020 election just don't bear that out. I mean, obviously we'll get more details, you know, as post-election surveys are taken and we, and we get to the final vote counts and stuff, but like that's, you know, so I'm, I'm in deep epistemic crisis right now. Um, just FYI. And on that note, I want to, I want to actually move to our final question, which James alluded to earlier 
about what we're what we'll be saying about this uh, election, maybe not in 2000 years, but you know, I don't know what people will be saying about the 2020 election in 2000 years. But what will people be saying in, in 20 or 50 years? What will be kind of the the stories about 2020 that are used to make sense of subsequent events? Yeah, so I'm we'll we'll give Seth the, the last word on this. So I think we'll go uh, James Lee. I'll I'll weigh in, and then Seth, you can have the last word. Well, I mean, I wouldn't put it. I want to give our you know listeners in two thousand years a little bit more credit. I mean, after all, we still read Livy and talk about Cicero and Catiline and and his conspiracy and the Gracchi rebellion a couple you know decades or hundred years before. My Roman history is a little rough right now. Wasn't anticipating talking about it as much in this episode. So, but I do think it does underscore the fact that we in the present ultimately uh, reinterpret our past on a continual basis. It is a contested issue. And, and that in the past, in, in a way, really pushes us. I'm going to end on a very Kafka esque note here. The past pushes us into the future and it, and it really propels us to act in, in, in different ways and to and to try to maneuver around our opponents and politics in different ways. And we use it, um, uh, it to that end. And I think it's important. And I would just ask, you know, and again, this may be to follow up later with you, Seth, about this too. But, you know, after writing so many, yeah, after writing this book, I mean, in your last comments, do you have any advice for us on how we can get a better idea about what the different people may be motivated to do in elections? And what that story is, what the more accurate story of an election is versus what people are trying to spin it necessarily. Um, for those of us in academia or politicians or in the media or just interested observers. Are we Rome, James? Maybe we are. So, you know, I mean, I think uh, one of the things that, uh, you know, this conversation and Seth's book really highlight for me is just, you know, how much of politics is really us in, we'll go back to the, to the Greeks now, us trying to, to make sense and we're all in Plato's cave. And, you know, we don't, we don't really know what, what makes uh, significant changes, especially in a close election, because electorates are complex, people are complex, politics is complex. And, uh, you know, that leads us to, to fall back on, you know, politics as, you know, power struggles, politics as sense-making, politics as as narrative. And, you know, that, that kind of puts the science part of political science a, a little bit to the margins here. Certainly we can draw correlations and kind of interpret that, uh, you know, but I think it's, it's really important to understand how much uh, politics itself is, you know, a, a complex dynamic system in which these cascades of, of information uh, can have uh, important effects. But, you know, that also makes me hopeful in a way uh, because, it, you know, that suggests that, that there is more potential for dynamism and to the extent that politics feels stuck and broken right now, it also suggests that you know, we can have uh, new narratives uh, that if we want to want to push push towards and have different visions for how politics ought to work. And it's not just about, oh, well, you know, members of Congress, you know, would never do that. Or, you know, the white establishment, you know, would never do that. But rather, it's about how, how do we construct 
our understanding of the world and we can influence that through the conversations that we have. And, you know, that, that, that to me is actually a, a hopeful takeaway. Well, that's, that was hopeful. I, I have a much less hopeful sort of takeaway, which is that I think the story of this election that, that people will be talking about in the decades to come is not so much about why Biden won or what happened in various competitive states, but about the the story of um the what's happened after um that's what i think will likely kind of overshadow a lot of election narratives and i don't i don't know how that will shape our understanding of meaning going forward except that it it will be obvious in the near term and i think it will be obvious in the long term that the you know the current administration and many of the republicans around them at the national level not so much at, at the state and local level but certainly at the national level have denied the results um have sort of looked the other way as the president has made various statements about the validity of the election and have really um done damage to our democracy and i, I think this is going to be um, an election where we haven't really talked about this in this episode very much, but I think that where we have to really reckon with um, with some of those larger forces. And I think that that will probably, unfortunately, be kind of cleaved off from the identity politics discussion. And I actually think, you know, I've written a little bit about this since the election, but I think that that is actually all part of the same conversation. So I actually see a very um, dark narrative coming out of this out of this election. Seth? Wow. Okay. You've all given me a lot to think about here. So um, I want to get back to each of your questions there. Um, uh, James, you sort of asked about ways to kind of get at what the activists themselves were saying and figuring out, you know, whether, how, you know, how sincere versus strategic they're being. And I'm, I'm thinking something that would be really valuable, and maybe this is just instructions for myself here, is to kind of follow the same activists and pundits over time and just figure out, are they, you know, do they make the same argument no matter what happens in an election? Um, uh, you know, versus are, are they really coming up with something novel? Um, I, I, I think there would be some, some use to uh, making this kind of a, you know, kind of a time series approach. So I want to think about that going forward. Um, I like what Lee was talking there about, you know, the possibility, you know, how cr the creation of narratives actually creates, uh, you know, some possibility for creativity um, and for some new, from some new options there. Um, one of the things that sort of struck me when talking with uh, all these democratic activists, you know, just asking them, you know, why did Hillary Clinton lose? Uh, just about no one brought up the electoral college. I mean, you know, they just sort of, you know, people just sort of accepted that as, you know, this is one of the, the you know, the, the fixed principles of the universe and we can't change that. We just, you were operating within that system. And, you know, no, I don't see electoral college you know, abolition as, as, a, as a realistic possibility in the near term, but um, that could be something, I, I think that is something Democrats should be focusing on is some way of, of, of dealing with that situation that is increasingly giving them a very serious disadvantage. And, you know, I, I, I think it would be useful for people to develop narratives about, um, you know, this electoral system is, is why this came out as it did. And maybe to think about, you know, perhaps some of the things that Lee, you talk about in, in your book about, you know, maybe we could be having a system that enables more parties um, uh, in, in which multi-member districts are a possibility. You know, I, I think people could be thinking outside the box um, on some of these election interpretations. But getting back to Julia's question about like, you know, how we're going to be thinking about this 
election in 20 years or God forbid, 2000 years. Um, you know, it's, it's funny. I, and I, I agree with Julia with, with what you were saying there about, um, you know, the, the Republican narratives developing out of the 2020 election right now are basically they're a proxy war so far over Trump's dominance of the Republican Party. That is, you know, it's 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 people denying uh, that he's even lost uh, versus people kind of saying nothing. Um, for the most part, the party is sort of avoiding having this debate about why exactly he lost. And I, I think they'll have to have that sooner or later. You know, he, he just, you know, at some point soon, he simply will not be in the White House and they'll need to be struggling with that. And um, and I think, but I think a lot of the interpretation of this election will come down to, um, uh, it'll be related to what happens to Trump over the next few years. And, you know, I can imagine a world in which he becomes, you know, pretty quickly becomes a fairly disgraced character he ends up. He, he could end up in prison. He could end up in exile in another country. Um, Republicans could be just very quickly trying to ignore him, pretending he largely never happened. Um, and 2020 will be seen as kind of you know the year that the U.S. avoided a major democratic crisis. You know, and and one of the narratives will be like you know you you know parties have fairly broad leeway as to who they nominate, but only so broad, and that you know Trump operated outside that, and Americans will only tolerate so much of that stuff. Um, on the other hand, I can also imagine a world in which Trump is still a very prominent actor within the Republican Party, um, in which he, he still maintains a lot of control over the RNC. He ends up, you know, as a, a front runner and possibly the, its nominee in 2024. Um, and 2020 comes to be seen like, you know, if you remember that moment in the film, A Perfect Storm, where, you know, they start to get blown out of one storm and briefly some sunlight comes down and blesses the boat and they think they're going to make it and it's right before the next storm just kills them. Um, you know, this could be sort of that, that you know, that brief respite, um, you know, in, in this otherwise anti-democratic trend. Um, but I think Republicans will soon be facing this, this narrative test. Um, coming down to this question of did they have to lose this? Did they have to lose the White House this time around? You know, given how they did in other elections, was this um, an election that was a, a needless loss for them? Could they have done better with a different nominee? Um, could they have actually done better with a different nominee in 2016? And you know, and could they have kept control of the executive branch this time around? If they come away thinking that, you know, I think there'd be some saying, you know, what maybe we need to change how we nominate candidates. Maybe we should exert more control over uh, the, you know, the, the sorts of people who run in our, our, our presidential nomination contests, um, if we can. Um, should we have superdelegates? Should we try and write a platform, which we kind of avoided? Um, on the other hand, some Republicans will come out of this thinking, this actually worked out okay for us. Uh, we got what we wanted out of this administration. And if we just keep doing what we're doing, we'll, we'll mostly dominate from here on out. Um, that that debate has yet to happen. I think in some ways they're trying, they're trying to prolong uh, having that as, as long as they can, but it, it is a debate that's coming in that party. Fascinating stuff. Yeah, so I could really talk about the future of both parties all, all day, um, but, uh, but we should let our listeners move on with their, with their lives. So um, thanks so much for joining us, Seth. Thank you, listeners, for joining us today. And this has been another episode of Politics in Question. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute. And our producers are Elena Soros, Shannon Lynch, 
and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.